bogged down on Abraham. I barely finished Abraham this morning. So um, I did. I did. We got through everything. But, but I'm going to go a little faster. And you can say hit the brakes or slow down. Or, or honestly, you can say, hey, we're not worried about the... the well, you can ask what you want to ask, okay? Um, a, a, a few things, though, housekeeping issues. Somebody asked me uh, last week, I, I've got three outstanding questions to come back to. And one is um, the difference between David's sin against Bathsheba and what happened in the Garden of Eden. Because I mentioned to you there was the word sin is not used to describe what happens anywhere in Genesis 1 through 11. Is that a good vantage point? Is this okay? And, and so... Um, I don't have a great answer to that question, except, right, that um, David clearly is in the wrong place at the wrong time, does what he does to a friend and a friend's wife, kills the friend to cover it up. All of that is very uh, deliberate, thought through. Contrast that with what happens in the garden. The woman wants to be like God, and that seems like a good thing to me, right? Interestingly enough, she ends up disobeying the word that God speaks to Adam in order to be like God, right? But her goal was not to use another human being. Her goal was to be like God and to know. So just, just want to hold that down to you. Maybe sin is sin in your head, or maybe there's areas of gray, and, and I want to suggest to you there's, there's possibilities. Did God ultimately want people to eat the fruit? Of course, you know if you've had small kids, the surest way to get them to do something is to tell them not to do it. Um, and if I told you now, don't think of a monkey with a tambourine, you probably would. Do <laughs> you, you know what I mean? So, so, so I don't know. I think, I think I, it's really hard to know what's, what's, what's intended. I think, again... One way to look at the story, and it's not my way and it's not the only way, but one way to look at the story is to tell us really descriptively as human beings, if we were given the choice between life with ignorance and knowledge with limited time, we'd pick the knowledge. And, and I actually think that's true to who we are as human beings. And I think the story is telling that truth to us. And I think the story might also be a cautionary tale that we don't just have to always pick knowledge. We can pick a knowledge that leads to life instead of a knowledge that leads to death. Does that, does that make sense? I mean, I think there's really choices. We can do a lot with it. And this is where I want to say, I don't think that there's a right way to interpret the Bible. I think there are wrong ways. And the criterion is, does the interpretation give more life or does it take away life. Does that sort of make sense? I don't know if I answered that question for that person. They can out themselves and say it was my question if they want to, but just some further reflections on that. Another question that I got last week is, who are the angels? And this is a really great question um, because there's not a clear answer to it. The Bible uses a couple of different terms to refer to heavenly beings, and I'll go ahead and list them for you if you're interested. One is lower G gods, plural. Remember the snake tells Eve, you won't die, you'll be like gods, knowing good and evil. Uh, this word in Hebrew 
shows up uh, B'nai Elohim, which is in Genesis 6. We didn't, we didn't read it. They had to skip over it because that's just so weird. The sons of God looked on the daughters of men and they had children who were like superheroes, uh, heroes of old. B'nai Elohim is a word that's often translated in English into angels. In Genesis 6, it's translated sons of God. There's 70 of these and they reflect the polytheistic pantheon in Canaan. So the number's fixed. What do you know? There's a seven. <laughs> there's a seven and there's a ten. These are significant uh, sort of biblical ancient Near Eastern religious numbers. Um, so the, early, the scholastic idea is that in the earliest mind, the, the Hebrew people were not monotheist. They were called monolatrist. That is, they worshipped one God, but believed there were others out there. And these others would be the B'nai Elohim, the sons of God, who later get called the angels. Now there's another option, uh, which is the word angel in both Greek and Hebrew is honestly best translated as messenger. And so sometimes you see the word angel and it could be a human being. It's a messenger, a divine messenger. So turns out the prophets are divine messengers. They give a divine message to the people and the human beings. Now, we've developed over the Middle Ages a bunch of different theology about what angels look like. Like they have wings and they're cute cherubs. And, and I think the person who asked me about angels referred to the, the comment I made last week about the cherubim. The cherubim is a four-faced, eyeball-covered thing with three sets of wings. Two that cover their face, two that cover their genitals, and two that they fly with. And the other comment I made to you is that the seraphim are like snakes, like Asclepius on the doctor's pole, on fire. They'd have two wings that they fly with, and two that cover their snake face with, and two that they cover their genitals with. Um, and and, and <laughs> that's a weird image, isn't it? So the fat humanoid cherubs are a Renaissance invention. They're not biblical. The, the archangels Gabriel and you've heard Raphael, he comes out of the Apocrypha. No one knows what those people look like. There's not a description of them and there's not an artistic representation that's early enough from the time of the text to know how people perceived these beings. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? Of course, the real idea is that God is the king in the heavenly court, and just like earthly kings, there's people that work for the king. Uh, the chancellor of the exchequer, right? Or the jester, or the prosecuting attorney. And later, when we read Job, we'll find that Satan in the Bible is the DA. Not wickedness incarnate, but a created being who serves God by prosecuting people. We, again, we have that person. That's the district attorney, right? Um, so the initial view is that Satan is not a bad person. Satan serves God by bringing charges against the wicked. Right. So all of that develops over time into this weird angelology of the flying messengers. But, but in... In the Hebrew Bible, over and over again, you'll see that sometimes it's an angel, and then you'll read the next verse, and it was actually God. When we get to the burning bush, that's exactly what happens. When it gets to Jacob wrestling, who did he wrestle? Could have been an angel. 
whatever that is. Could have been his brother Esau, could have been God. Jacob says it's God. I've seen God to face to face and I've lived. But the text never tells you. The text is almost always ambiguous. There's three people this week who come to see Abraham. His name's changed by then, right? One of them's God and the other two are, who knows? The Bible doesn't tell you. And, and this is part of the deal. If it were really important, it would. So it's not important to the central message of the Bible. Part two is that the people who read it at the time were so familiar with these concepts that they didn't need to be explained. So some of that's been lost out. You know, I could spend 15 minutes telling you about those four verses in Genesis chapter 6 that we didn't read last week about the sons of God and the daughters of men and how that resulted in spirits being chained under the earth and what John Milton did with that. And, and all that's weird. And, and these giant people that ended up being drowned in the flood, they're called the Nephilim, the fallen ones. They're like 12 feet tall. So Goliath is nine feet tall. He's not one of those. He's just really tall. The Nephilim are like real giants. And Moses kills the last one. I mean, this is weird. <laughs> Anybody ever heard what I'm telling you? Other than from me? It's weird stuff, though. It's super weird. But the people at the time of the Bible were fluent in it which is why there's not a lot of detail given because the, the people already knew those weird stories. We've lost those stories. Does that, does that make sense? In some ways, thanks be to God because they're just weird stories. <laughs> they're extremely weird. Okay. Um, hopefully I answered some question about angels. But again, the function of the angels is to be a divine messenger. So you're not thinking that an angel is a duke or a baron, or a petty noble in God's kingdom. An angel is a messenger. And that could be a human being. Um, now we should get on to the topic of covenant. Now I'm going to... Any questions? You just stop me. Okay? We're going to get on to the thematic word of covenant. Now we still have these. In fact, I think Nassau Bay is a covenanted community because we have an HOA. Anybody live in an HOA? So there's certain rules that you have to abide in. There's certain dues you have to pay. Um, this is really different. Um, the, the, the difference really biblically between a covenant and a contract is, is, is twofold, it seems. The contract is uh, subject to parties agreeing, and when one party dies, contract over. Okay? Covenant is forever. <laughs> it has to be renewed, but it doesn't go away. Uh, Article 2 is that contracts are geographically limited, whereas covenants move with the individuals involved. So, so strictly speaking, think about how Abraham moves from Ur of the Chaldees, that's modern-day Iraq, to Israel. He ends up visiting Pharaoh, that's Egypt. All along the way, the covenant applies once it's made. Right? If it were a contract, it would be geographically specific. The other thing that's interesting is that biblically, no covenant is made. You cannot make a covenant. You don't sign on the line. A covenant biblically is always cut. So never will you say Abraham made a covenant with God. Abraham cut a covenant. This is always the verb is to cut them. And you saw in the first bit where God shows up to Abraham, he says, God says, get a heifer and a pigeon and a turtle dove and cut them in half. And Abraham does that. And then both entities walk through the pieces. They walk through the middle and they say, if I don't keep my end of the covenant, do this to me. And we find this in records in the ancient Near East um, that, that 
that lords would do this with vassals. And of course the implication is, as my servant, you'll do what I tell you or I'll cut you in half. But when a lord does it as well, the lord is saying, my promise is good enough, cut me in half. And notice in the text, there's a terrifying darkness the first time. Now, who knows what that means? But God passes through the animals. God says, uh, if I didn't keep my word to you about you being a blessing, may I be cut in half like the animals. Now, the sign, of course, of cutting a covenant, think about this, changes from cutting the animal to a different kind of cutting, which happens on the eighth day if you're a Jewish boy. Circumcision is the method by which a Jewish person is cut into the covenant. So if a boy is prohibited from being circumcised, and, and you're thinking about different epochs in world history like pogroms and persecution of Jewish people, Nazi Germany, but you're also thinking about um, the, the post-Alexander age under Antiochus Epiphanes um, IV, where circumcision is forbidden, basically that's, that's saying you're no longer God's covenanted people. So, so, so that's, they would, in general, prefer to die than, than lose being cut into the covenant on the eighth day. Does that sort of make sense, what I'm saying? We don't cut covenants anymore. We just, we just draw them up and sign them. So, so this is very, very different. It's in some ways, very archaic. That's our abiding word. Now, the other thing that's, that's interesting is that when God does with Abraham, God says to Abraham, I will, uh, your, your, your descendants will be numerous and I'll make a great nation of you. And then there's a line that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Are you familiar with this line? We, I mean, we read it. It's one line though, and I know we had a lot to read. It's a really important line because later um, in the New Testament, that line gets put up to say it was Abraham's faith, not his works, that justified him. The New Testament argues that Abraham believed God, and because Abraham believed, it was credited to Abraham as righteousness. The rabbis totally disagree with this. The earlier reading of that verse is, Abraham believed God's promise, and Abraham credited God's promise to God as righteousness. I think the, the, the difference is somewhat significant. One is, the first view is, if we don't have the right belief, we're in trouble. And that our belief is really important in God's view of us. The second view says, God is to absolutely be trusted. And I think how different those are. I grew up in, in the low Protestant church, in which if you had the wrong belief, you were in danger of hell. Which is why there are three Baptist churches in a mile in uh, Lake Lanier, Georgia. Hope Baptist Church, New Hope Baptist Church, and Real Hope Baptist <laughs> Church. Because if you had the wrong belief, you were in trouble. That's the way to take it as Abraham's belief made him righteous. The, the rabbinic way, Abraham believes God's promise and credited God as righteous, 
Well, I just think that's a lot more gracious. It's trustworthy. When God gives us a promise, when God offers God's self up, God is to be trusted regardless of what we do. I just think that's a lovely thing to find in Genesis. And, and I want to attach to it that Abram and Isaac and Jacob are lousy people. I mean, they're terrible parents, for one thing. They're terrible parents. At no point does Abraham really show a strong trust in God except from the very beginning when he moves. But the rest of the story, he makes his own plans. Right? The rabbis tell you, if God can work with these people, God can work with us. These are not heroes. They're people. And so it's God's righteousness in the story that's important, not theirs. Now, that's a neat reading. I think that's a really neat, accessible reading. Uh, and going back to the beginning then, if it's okay, Abram's um, 80 years old, living in modern-day Iraq, Ur of the Chaldees. His father, Terah, is apparently still alive when one day God, whom he doesn't even know, says, leave your land and go to a land I will show you. Abram's living in the Furrow Crescent. His name's Abram, which means the exalted father. He has no kids, <laughs> right? His father, Terah, is still alive, and to leave his father basically means disowning his father, because in the ancient world, children take care of their parents, particularly the firstborn, unto death, right? So to leave is doing that. The other thing is he's also neglecting his inheritance because you don't get it till you die. So whatever he has is but a fraction of what he would have if he stayed. Abraham's leaving security. He's leaving social convention. <clears throat> he's leaving his father to die. He goes. He goes from a land that's irrigated by the Tigris and Euphrates rivers to the desert. If you've ever been to East County, San Diego, you know what Israel looks like scrubby little bushes. Now, some of us went to Israel in March and were amazed at how green it is. That's because they have pipes <laughs> and they trucked in water. They didn't have that. I mean, you're talking about a sparse desert, a nomadic existence, not an agricultural one. Abram goes, his wife is really old. She's well past the childbearing age, right? The only story we know before this story in the Bible, which is cute, it's worth telling, is in the Midrash. It also makes its way into the Quran. And it, the story says that Abram's father was an idol maker. Not that he made idol. That's what we say in South Carolina for ladies, lazy people. They make idol. Um, but that he was an idol maker. And so one day, um, Terah leaves Abram in the idol shop to get lunch or something. And Abram breaks, smashes every single idol to pieces except for one. Just cause. And he puts the stick in that one's hand. And when the dad comes back and says, what happened? Abram says, he did it. And, uh, and the story reads, when God saw that, God knew God could work with this one. That's a cute story, isn't it? Um, so anyway, Abram goes down, and look who he brings with him. <clears throat> Eliezer of Damascus, his servant, and his nephew Lot. And God tells Abram initially, go to land I'll show you, and I will bless you, and all the nations of the world will be blessed by you. 
And in this sense, um, the word blessing is shown up here for the first time. And, and blessing, we usually think of, I'll, give you, I'll make you rich, I'll give you lots of commodities. Um, and you can find that if you watch late night TV uh, preachers. They'll tell you God wants you to be rich so that your tithe will be bigger. <laughs> but so will what you keep. This is bizarre. Blessing in the Hebrew Bible, especially early, it means that you'll be fruitful. It's a fertility term. Go where I show you, and you'll produce an heir. This is what God is saying. You'll be fruitful and you'll multiply. But then God goes on to say, all the nations of the earth will be blessed by you. And really early on, you see the Bible is telling us that any blessing we receive, whether it's uh, fertility or, frankly, monetary, is not for ourselves. It's for us to distribute. It's almost like God is saying, Abraham, you will be the satellite by which my signal is transmitted to all the TVs. <laughs> Did I do that right, engineering people? That's what satellites do, right? Uh, so, so, so it's really helpful to think through that blessings are, are not for us, they're for us to share. And that's, that's early, early on in the Bible, whether it be education or compassion or resources, right? Okay, so Abram goes, and, and um, Sarah's old, and we get the same story. It happens not twice, like she said, it happens three times, right? The, the, the story is Abimelech of Gerar the first time. Abimelech means my father is the king, so he's a prince. Um, Sarah is 60, and, and I'm sure she was a good-looking gal, but you know, the reason you had marriage in the ancient world was pr to produce heirs. So really no one's going to be tricked by this. Um, Sarah is not going to be producing any heirs. Um, why Abram is worried to death, people will kill him for a woman who can have no children is very confusing. But he is. Notice, he's a scumbag to his wife. They'll kill me, so you just go with this guy. The guy Abimelech He's probably a more proper person than Abram is. Because he doesn't touch her. That's how the story reads, right? He, he, he's, he's civil and, and honorable. <clears throat> that story happens three times. It happens with Abimelech. <clears throat> it happens again with Pharaoh in Egypt. And then the same exact story happens with Isaac and Rebekah. The names have changed, all the other details, including the name Abimelech, is the same. The only reason I point this out, right, is to tell you why scholars believe there's multiple sources being recorded in the same document, okay? You don't have to love it, but since I introduced the idea to you, I, I, just, I just want to tell you further evidence of, of, of why people think this. And, and, and frankly, it's just a weird story, and, and Sarah is his half-sister, but that isn't why he did what he did. He, wasn't, he didn't say she's my sister to tell the truth, he told it to deceive. And, and this is God's chosen agent, which, again, God can work with that guy. I've also deceived people intentionally in my life. So there's, there's hope for me, right? <clears throat> the book is funny because it sometimes has a skip stories. It has a skip that Abraham brings Eliezer of Damascus. That's what we call plan B. God says, you'll have a child with Sarah, and plan B is my servant, there's plan C, that's his nephew Lot. 
why else would he bring him except that he is, is thinking what he'll do with him. You know, when they get to the, the choice of land, Abram gives Lot the first choice. That's only somebody, something you would do to, to your favored descendant. You would not do that to your red-headed nephew, <laughs> you, you know. Um, so Lot is plan C. Hagar is, and, and Ishmael are plan D. And, and Isaac was the plan A, but please notice what Abram's faith looks like. He's got three backup plans. Any of you have backup plans? Uh, this is good. This is where the Bible is, really speaks to how we actually live. It's not some pious document, right? I mean, people live like this. Um, what happens is uh, Lot picks apparently the, the very fertile land of Sodom and Gomorrah, which um, apparently before they were sort of, what's the right word, nuclear bombed, uh, were not the lowest point on the earth's surface, but, but were apparently were an oasis where the Jordan River would have emptied. Now, now this is probably accurate that if the Jordan River did not go down 2,000, um, you know, 1,700 feet below sea level, if it stayed level, um, there probably would be an oasis. Right? I mean, that, that, that would work. Um, <clears throat> there's no evidence that that ever happened, but, but, but this is where, where, where Lot is. And Lot chooses this rich land. That Lot chooses to be a farmer, basically, and Abraham chooses to be a nomadic shepherd. And <clears throat> in the story, Lot gets taken captive by some kings who go raid it. Abraham goes on his own raiding party and gets Lot back. And then along the way, Abraham passes the city of Salem, not Jerusalem, the city of Salem. And out comes the priest king of, of Salem, this man named Melchizedek, which in Hebrew just means the king of righteousness. Now, why Abraham cares about him, we have no idea. Because to give you an idea, the oldest city of Salem or Jerusalem when David conquered it was like eight city blocks, which is tiny. You know, it was, this was no big city. <laughs> um, this is like Fresno, Texas. Um, it has a horse park. That's why I've been there. Um, tiny. Um, so... So Melchizedek comes out, and this is a bizarre story. He gives Abram a blessing, and Abram gives him 10% of his goods. And this is where we sort of get this idea about tithing from, <clears throat> this, this story here. doesn't explain why it's 10%. just presents it, 10% of the stuff. Later in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, um, they do some midrash on Melchizedek and say that he's Jesus, because the king of righteousness, well, of course, that's Jesus, Right? And, and this is where the tithe comes from in Hebrews. And Melchizedek is like a different priest. He's not like Aaron and Moses who have flaws. He's the king of righteousness. And Jesus is sinless. This is Midrash. It's not in the text anywhere. The author of Hebrews makes it up. Do, do you understand what I'm saying? Now, now God could have whispered that in the author's ear, but you didn't read any of what I just told you in the story. This guy just comes out and blesses Abraham, and then Abraham gives him some stuff. That's the story. Um, what's interesting to know is that this guy that comes out <clears throat> is not a monotheist. He's a polytheist. 
And this is a polytheist city. In Hebrew, shalom means peace, but the name of the city isn't Jerusalem. It's, it's uh, Salim, which is the name of one of the gods in the Canaanite pantheon. And, and this is interesting to pay attention to. The sister city of Salim is the city Bethlehem, which in Hebrew means house of bread, but um, also means house of Lehem, which is another one of the gods in the Jebusite pantheon. And what do you know, in both those cities, they worship their God in a temple, and they believe God lived there. And I'm just forecasting this now. The Hebrew people don't build a temple and kill King David, who's from Bethlehem, captures Jerusalem, and builds one. When you read what Moses says on top of the mountain, the rule is no temples. <laughs> You're supposed to worship God in a tent that moves around. And then when David, who grew up in that religion with temples, becomes king, he changes how you worship. Pretty weird. Okay. Um, what does it mean to be righteous anyway? Um, to reckon God is righteous or Abraham or to be the king of righteousness. We also think that's a, like a churchy piety word, and really that's a justice term. To be righteous means to be just, to have integrity, to be reliable. These are actually very like virtuous terms and not connected to piety necessarily. Does that sort of make sense? We've, we've now converted the parlance to mean there's something like nuns are righteous and priests are righteous, but people who keep their word are righteous. People who fight on behalf of the rights of others are righteous. Biblically, that's what the word's talking about. Um, plan C. Shall we talk about plan C? Am I going too fast? We read this stuff, right? I mean, even if we skimmed it, we, we read it. Um, plan C is Hagar. And golly, I sure don't like Sarah in the story. I don't know about you. Um, Hagar's her, her, her Egyptian woman servant or maid servant, right? Is that a slave? Yes. Maybe. There's lack of clarity. So a slave is either somebody you purchase and own, although you're not allowed to kill them. You can beat them. Um, or it's somebody that you won in the spoils of war, right? Or it's somebody who's like you pay, but they're a second-class citizen because they're an alien in a foreign land, like in the movie The Help. They're not slaves, but they're second-class citizens, right? So could be any of those. Now, I suppose there's a fourth option where she just works for Sarah. But please notice, Sarah is the one who says, Abraham, you sleep with her, and he does. Doesn't talk about Hagar's agency at all. Please also notice, Sarah controls fertility in the house. Abram doesn't come up with the idea, Sarah does, and Sarah directs Abraham what to do. The women in the rest of the story do that as well. Rachel tells Jacob, you'll be sleeping with Leah tonight, and he does. Right? So, so I told you that, that we have a skewed view. There's some evidence. You can read this book. It's, it's long and not necessarily exciting. Rediscovering Eve um, comes out of Harvard uh, Divinity School that says in the earlier times before there was a king, um, when men, when, the women and men um, had separate roles, but women weren't quite as subjugated until the monarchy came. Women did control fertility and marriages 
and which child ultimately was going to be the successor, which is what happens biblically. The women control all of those things. And, and, and so the, the, the women actually lived in separate compounds from the men did. And as I told you in Genesis, when you got married, you went to the mother-in-law's house, not the father-in-law's house. Not the father's, the mother-in-law's house, the mother of the bride. You went and lived with her in her compound, not in the father of the bride's compound. Right? So, and the text reads this way. It's sort of weird. But, but Sarah treats Hagar like a total commodity. And, and maybe because she is. She's a slave or owned. I mean, I think, I think that's a fair read of the story, Hagar's status. She is Egyptian. So, so think about this. She's, she's property, and her language, if she speaks Abram and Sarah's language, which would probably Ugaritic, not Hebrew, right? they came from from Iraq. So they weren't speaking Hebrew up there, right? Um, She's alienated in her own household, right, by her own language and her skin color and her customs. She's Egyptian. They're Chaldean. Anyway, Sarah says this is what you do. And um, sure enough, uh, Hagar works out. She has a son, and and, um, he's named Ishmael. And, And then Sarah decides that um, Hagar is being very haughty about this because <laughs> Sarah has been unsuccessful in conceiving, and Hagar has. And one wonders, was Hagar actually being this way, or was Sarah projecting this on her? <clears throat> There's another interesting detail, which is when Ishmael is born, he's laid on Sarah's knees. I don't know if you noticed that. Um, that's to imply that she's Sarah's son. This happens a few times in the Bible that you hear about surrogates. If you've read the book of Ruth, anybody read Ruth? Um, <clears throat> Ruth has a, 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 a boy with Boaz, and when the boy is born, he's immediately taken from Ruth and given to her mother-in-law, Naomi, so that she can nurse the boy. Well, she's like 80 years old. There'll be no nursing that boy. It's a symbol that the boy is Naomi's son, not Ruth's. So laying the baby on the knees, this is very Handmaid's Tale, by the way, if you've read the Margaret Atwood book. This is what's going on. They lay babies on the knees, like you just gave birth to the baby, so it's on your knees. Or or the surrogate um, mother loses it, and the real mother nurses it, whether they have milk or not. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? So, so, So the funny thing is, Sarah acts like Ishmael is Hagar's son, but everyone else would have perceived Ishmael as Sarah's son. Because it was laid on her knees. Does that make sense what I'm saying? It's like Sarah is rejecting her own son when she rejects Ishmael. And Sarah becomes abusive. She, she beats this woman, and Hagar runs away. And this is not a great scene. I mean, there's, there's two parts of the scene that are good. One is... God looks after the outsider and gives her water in the desert, otherwise she'd have died. And this is the first time a human being names God. It's a woman. It's Hagar. Hagar names God El Roy, which is the God who sees. God looked at me. Nobody else was looking for me, and God did. Troubling news here, and I don't want to gloss over it, is that God says, Oh, Hagar, just go on back. To the abusive owner of you. Um, it's troubling for me um, because you, you probably learned of this. It wasn't just in the 50s this happened. 
that um, women would go see their pastor after their husbands had physically abused them, and their pastors would say, go on back. This is part of the reason they would. They'd say, God told Hagar to go back. And I just want you to know, I would say, go on to a shelter, and we're going to take care of you as the church, right? And, and going back shouldn't happen anytime soon until we've had some professional mediation and you've decided you even want to do it. In general, my bias is, Get away. Don't, don't, don't go back to someone who's abused you. There's still pastors today that will tell battered women to go back, right? And, and this is scary. I just, just want to name it. And this becomes really important, right, is, is if we take the Bible always as telling us how we should behave, then that, that counsel is warranted. But if the Bible is sometimes telling us how we behave and then we're to evaluate whether we should or not, that's a different way of reading. Does that, does that make sense? We can read the Bible as prescribing do this or describing this is what you do and maybe you shouldn't do it anymore. Anyway, Hagar goes back. And, um, and then right after Hagar goes back, about 12 years later, God says, Abraham, I'm going to make a covenant with you and... Here's the sign of the covenant. Last time we got the animals, this time it's circumcision. And Abram is 119 years old when he circumcises himself with a flint knife because they didn't have any metal. And he says, happy birthday, Ishmael. Come, let's celebrate being 13. This won't hurt me much. Um, and, and this is the age then, this is where the age 13 becomes the adulthood age for boys because this is when Ishmael is circumcised by, by his father Abram. <clears throat> uh, and, and that's when the covenant is cut, not just with animals, but with circumcision. And this is when Abram gets the new name Abraham, which means father of many, and Sarai, which means my princess, changes to sort of the princess of all. Um, idea in Bible, when your name changes, your identity changes as well. Right? So your name is who you are. Abram goes from being an exalted father to the father of many. <clears throat> He's still just the father of one, though. It's important to point out. <laughs> Am I going, this is okay? You're going to interrupt me if you've got questions or comments, right? It's just so much I'm trying to cram it all. Yeah, okay. It isn't but the next chapter that Abram is in the tent and three visitors pass by one day, right? And it turns out, oddly enough, one of those visitors is God. Now, I don't know how that works. Maybe it was Jesus. That's what I was taught. But, but again, they didn't believe in Jesus at the time, so who knows? But one of them is God. And, and Abram, there's this rule. When people are passing by, especially in a desert, there's not a lot of stopping points. So there's this fundamental kind of truce in the desert called hospitality. And it says when somebody's passing by, especially if you don't know them, you offer them shelter and water and food so they don't die in the desert. And, and the understanding is you do that to everybody and they do that to you. It's a good way of living in the desert. And, and the basic rule is something like bread and water. And Abram says to the three people, come on in, I'll give you bread and water. And when they do, instead, he gives them dairy, which is hard to come by in the desert. Not a lot of grass, right? And animals need that to produce dairy. 
He kills the fattened calf, uh, yogurt, and choicest flour, etc. So instead of giving him a snack, he puts on a banquet. And Abraham shows this incredible hospitality. I almost missed this. Before that, Abraham circumcises himself. God says, you'll have a child. And Abraham says, <laughs> Abraham laughs. No comment on Abraham laughing. Do you notice? When Sarah laughs, she's in trouble. Abraham did it first, right? No comment from God. Okay, brings the people in. <clears throat> and God sort of has this exterior monologue. Should I hide from Abraham, who I've cut a covenant with, what I'm getting ready to do? No, I guess not. Hey, Abram, I've heard Sodom and Gomorrah are really bad. I'm going to go check it out. Wait a minute. You don't know if they're bad or not? You have to go check? This is a good question. Does God actually know whether they're that bad or not? Hebrew Bible doesn't presume God's all-knowing. So God has to check. And then God sort of says, yeah, I think they probably are bad. I'm just going to go ahead and destroy the whole place. <laughs> and then Abram does the opposite of what you do at a Middle Eastern bazaar. He does haggle, right? Anybody been to a Middle Eastern bazaar? Like four of us have. You never pay what they tell you, ever. You say, whatever they tell you, $100, you say $10. And when they act disgusted, you walk away and they chase you. And they say, okay, okay, for you, for you, $80. And you say, $12, right? You know, this is how this goes. When you agree on a price, you better pay it. Abram is a terrible negotiator because he says, God, would you destroy the good with the bad. I mean, there's good people there. Would you destroy the weeds with the wheat? Jesus tells that parable, remember? Jesus says, this is why you don't pull the weeds up now. You'll hurt the wheat. Um, <clears throat> what if there's 50 people? 50 is a lot of people. God says, yeah, there's 50 people. And this is when the deal should be over, <laughs> right? Or else Abraham should have said, what if there's one and, and met at a higher number? But Abraham has the gall to break all the rules. What about 45? <laughs> well, okay, I mean, we'd agreed on 50, but 45, that'll do. Okay, 40, 30, 20, 10. It's good, it's good to get God down to 10. The rabbis wonder why he stopped at 10. In fact, the rabbis are really disappointed he didn't keep going. Because God has done nothing but concede ground, right? The rabbis say if Abraham had really himself been righteous, He'd have gotten down onto one and maybe to zero. Uh, but God says, fine, ten. Then we get to read the story, right? Where the, the two people, not called angels, go into Sodom and Gomorrah and nobody greets them. Again, the rules are when a stranger comes, you've got to give them shelter and water. You don't have to give them lavish food, but the rules are you've got to give them board. No one does it except for Lot. Now, he's not from around there. He's like a Yankee carpet bagger in South Carolina living there, and he's going to show the hospitality. The town's actually very offended by this because he's not from around there, and he's taking them in. He's making the town look bad. So sure enough, in the middle of the night, they come to do we don't know what. Hebrew does not have a, a very specified language and loves to use euphemisms. And um, the people in the town say, send those two people out so we can know them. Um, <clears throat> it could just mean get to know them. 
there's not really a word for rape them. That doesn't appear in the language. It's a word poor language. So, so, so we don't know, although the hostility builds, so we think perhaps this is the euphemism that sometimes gets used to know is sometimes used for sexual intercourse, right? And Lot seems to have a really interesting uh, reaction. He says, no, don't do such a thing. Don't get to know them. Instead, take my two virgin daughters. I find this difficult as a parent of a daughter. Uh, now, I think if you read it figuratively and say, look, Lot is willing to entertain strangers even to his personal detriment, that's an okay enough read. And if you step away from the details, right, Lot's offering radical hospitality. Abraham offered radical hospitality. The town is offering radical inhospitality. Please know that this is one of the most abused stories in the Bible. People have been using this story for a long time to say God hates homosexuality. But please notice there is no consenting adult behavior here at all. The men of the town want to rape these men. They want to rape them to show that they are physically and culturally and intellectually and spiritually superior to these foreigner people. And that's the way you do it, not by killing them, because then they'd be dead. When you rape them, they know, they know that they have been belittled more than death could possibly do in an honor and shame culture. Now, I want you to hear that the story is about that. The story is not about homosexuality, except as a means of belittling somebody. So if someone ever comes to you and says, God hates gay people because of this story, you can say, maybe because of other stories, but not this one. Does that make sense? This, again, this has nothing to do with the relationships that are in front of us today that are about consenting adult behaviors among equals instead of belittling. This is what happens in prison. Okay? Sure enough, the town gets stricken blind. There's only one good person. Maybe it's Lot. I'm not sure how good he really is. Um, and then they flee. And, and then the situation gets nuclear because the whole city blows up and Lot's wife turns into salt. And the daughters think compassionately, may believe that they're the last people left on earth. So perhaps what they do next that seems really awful to us is for just saving the human race. They're the last two women. Their dad's the last man. To save the human race, they better get him drunk. And they do. And they produce children named Ammon and Moab, who, what do you know, are very like the Hebrew people and live near them, but they've been feuding for a long time. In some ways, this story is an etiology, like why don't people like snakes and why is childbirth so difficult, an etiology of why we don't get along with the Moabites and the Ammonites. Because they're kind of like us, and religiously they were. Uh, Hebrew people weren't the only people who were circumcised, by the way. Egyptians did that, and so did the Moabites and the Ammonites. Hebrew people circumcised more skin off um, than, than these other people did, but they did it. Um, <clears throat> similar, some similar religious practices, all the similarity, though, there's something not quite right with these people. I know. It's because they started when the daughter got their dad drunk and got pregnant by him. Earthy book, right? This is why you don't hear these stories at the Sunday morning service. They show up in the daily office, 
so you can read them privately, right? Um, but this is kind of like our material or, or maybe NC-17. It gets real bad when we get to Judges. I'll just let you know. I mean, it's, it's really rough. Um, but, but this is a difficult, this is a difficult book. They're gritty and they're full of this. I'm not bringing these lurid details in. You read them. Um, anyway, that's where, those, that's where those folks come from. And I did skip over the fact that Sarah laughs, and um, as a result, they're going to name their child Isaac, which means laughter. Now, from the beginning, Abraham laughs. God says, we'll call him Isaac. Abraham says, because everyone will laugh with me. But when it happens with Sarah, there's like a different reason to call him Isaac, which is in some ways, you laughed at God, and that's a shameful thing to do, and, and that's your child. So there's sort of competing stories for why you call the kid Isaac and, and whether or not it's okay to laugh at God. If you're Abraham, it is. If you're Sarah, it's not. Uh, any questions about Sodom and Gomorrah, by the way? Okay. Um, then comes the next story, and this is Sarah's last thing. The rabbis even say what she does is so bad that after she does it, she doesn't get to talk anymore. And, and that is, she looks at um, her, the 14-year-old Ishmael playing with the one-year-old Isaac playing, and she says, get rid of him. And the people in the video said there's this rule called primogenitor. The firstborn gets the double share. You'll, you'll read that translation in the Bible. Firstborn gets the double share, but that's confusing. The firstborn boy actually gets 90% of the inheritance, not, not a double share, 90%. The secondborn boy gets 10%, and all other children get 0%. Um, if you have 10 girls in a row and one boy, he gets 100%, and they get nothing. Right? So double portion's confusing, 90%. Sarah looks at the two kids playing, and she's got the percentage rule in her head going, um, is Ishmael going to get the 90 and Isaac, who's actually my son out of my body, is he going to get the 10? Or maybe Isaac will get the 90, but Ishmael gets the 10. She decides Ishmael gets the zero. And she says, get rid of him. And um, Abraham seems to care about Ishmael. He seems troubled. The rabbis actually say um, they're not sure whom Abraham loves more, Ishmael or Isaac. But Abraham inquires of God, and God says, yeah, go ahead and drive him out. you got to stop and ask yourself, is that consonant with your view of God? Always good to ask, and that question's really going to come up again in the next chapter. Um, so, so they do, and, and remember Ishmael's 14, and mom's carrying him around in the desert. Now she's got to be strong, because that's a big kid to be carrying around. And she sees he's going to die, and he's 14, and she sort of lays him up against a tree. There's not trees in the desert. It's not a cactus either, but it's probably like a scrubby bush. And she goes, and then, and then God gives her water again. The story reduplicates, right? The first time it's just her, now it's she and her son, right? So you, you hear it twice. And, and then it just moves on. So Ishmael gets to have some kids, but it doesn't matter anymore. This is, tough. this is a tough go. <clears throat> then we get to this story that is called, if you're Jewish, the Akedah, which means the binding of Isaac. We call it the sacrifice of Isaac, but if you're Jewish, he wasn't, well, they're not sure if he was sacrificed. They know he was bound up. 
and the practice of what happens is pretty common. There's a bunch of gods in the Canaanite pantheon named things like Molech and Milcom and Chemosh. And what you did is to show how much you worship the god, you gave them your most valuable commodity, which is your firstborn son. So you'd either bash their brains down on a rock and then burn them up, or you'd just pass them live into a fire and burn them up. And this happened, interestingly enough, um, down the mountain um, in Jerusalem. So in Jerusalem, um, there's this place called Mount Moriah, which is where the temple's built. It's the relative maximum. Um, That's where you would worship a god of the sky, the high place. The gods of the earth you would worship in the low place. And uh, interestingly enough, Molech, Milcom, Chemosh are are gods of the earth. So... Lots of people were passing their firstborn babies into the fire at the, at the relative minimum, which in Jerusalem is the place in Greek called Gehenna, which our Bible translates as the word hell. Um, so if you wonder what, what hell is, hell is when you sacrifice your firstborn child to appease God. Literally, that's, that's hell. Um, <clears throat> these people are doing it, so maybe, maybe, God's trying to figure out if Abraham has the kind of faith they do. Will you be loyal to me like those people are loyal to their gods? Of course, you start to wonder, if God knows everything, why does God need to test Abraham, right? Doesn't God already know? And then you start to wonder, would God ask you to do something that's contrary to who God is? Like, would God ask you to murder somebody? Because the, the, the character of God in Scripture is that we don't do that. Right, don't, don't kill, that's one of the ten words. Hard to know. When I tell this story to the day school kids, I'm just going to tell you, uh, I say, you know, Abraham wanted to give God his best, and Abraham thought this is what he needed to do. In the story, God stops Abraham, right? Um, I wonder if this interpretation I'm just giving you is part of why we pray in the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation. I don't usually think God leads me into temptation, I wonder if that phrase is something like this, where sometimes I have an idea and I put God behind it so that I'm worshiping God when I'm really just doing what I wanted to do all along. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? It's a troubling passage, right? And you start to wonder, and I learned this when I was a little boy going to um, the churches I went to, that if God tells you to kill your son, that's what you do. And the workbook says that obedience is the most important thing, and, and, and I, disagree, I, just, I just disagree. If God told me to kill my daughter, I just would say no, categorically. Uh, and if I had to do it to worship God, I just don't think I would worship God. I think I'd keep my daughter alive. And I, I suspect that's true for most of you, and that that would be a good thing. Does that, does that make sense? In some ways... I'm saying this not because I I dislike it, but I think that's part of what the story is asking us to do, is to think through, is God like this or not? And what should our response be? Interestingly enough, the rabbis say Isaac was 38 when this happened. (laughs) Yeah, I turned 38. My brother said, get ready for a tough year. Um, (laughs) He was somewhat right, although 36 was a little tougher. Okay, um, they, they, they go up there, right, and uh, when you read it, just to, just to give you attention how rabbis read this, when this whole thing's over, Abraham walks down by himself. And the rabbis say Abraham did kill Isaac, and God reconstituted him later. Because the story says Abraham walks down the mountain, not the both of them. 
You can do what you want with that, but this is how close people read and what to do with it. Um, we did all that stuff. So Abraham can't leave. Uh, sorry, Isaac, for some reason, can't seem to leave the promised land on his own. Right? The servant has to go do it. Now, the servant doesn't believe in the God of Abraham, but does pray to the God of Abraham. Do, do you notice, uh, servant's a polytheist, worships other gods, but says, hey, let this happen when I come to the well. And you know, in Star Wars, <clears throat> when you hear that song, dun, 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 you know Darth Vader's going to be on the screen. That's a motif, right? In the Bible, when, someone go, when a man goes to a well and there's a woman, it's a motif. There's going to be a wedding. Right, so, so when you see a well, you're going to hear wedding bells, and, and that's what happens. And this is the perfect motif. The lady comes out and does exactly what the servant wanted. Draws water for him, that's hospitality, but shows excessive hospitality by watering the camels. She didn't have to do that culturally, she does. And that's how the servant discerns this will be a good person. Someone who shows excessive hospitality. You see the theme, right? Um, <clears throat> So, so the, the, she, she draws the water, and he gives her uncle and her brother a bunch of money. <laughs> and they say, hey, that's great. Now go on home, and she'll come 10 days later. Read between the lines. They intend to steal the money, <laughs> right? And who decides whether she goes? Ha! Ah, you see, women have agency. Perhaps her mother's dead, and that's why she decides. Ordinarily, the mom would decide, not the dad and the brother. They can't make that decision culturally. This is what, going back to what I was telling you. Um, sure enough, when you get engaged, you don't get a ring on your finger. You get a ring in the middle of your nose. How comfortable. Uh, <laughs> and, and it's gold, and, and they know he's got money. I mean, that's the deal. So, so she goes. <clears throat> you notice that the servant's riding camels, and people had not domesticated the camel at that time. This is what we call an anachronism. The Bible does this frequently. Um, talks about the Philistines. They weren't around this time either. Um, th this is when we take something we're so used to and think it's always been there and it hasn't. Like in Julius Caesar when they look up at the clock tower. Well, they had sundials. They didn't have clocks. Right? Shakespeare does this too. So we do have some anachronisms in Scripture. Um, camels domesticated, we think, around 1250, but the Abraham story should be around 1450. Does that make sense? Um, just interestingly enough, this word testament, um, this is just for you word people out there. When the servant is going to go, Abraham says, put your hand under my thigh and swear you'll do this. Right? This is where the words we get testimony and testify, and of course, you know what they're based off is the word testicle, because that's where the servant put his hands. He swore on Abraham's testicles. You see, again, blessing and fertility are all bound up in this. Thank God we don't do this anymore, right? We just pinky swear, which is much preferable to putting your hand under someone's thigh. Yes, this happens as well at the end, right, uh, with Jacob, you have to put your hand under his thigh. I mean, you know, they weren't wearing undergarments like we wear, so this was much easier. And again, I was just grateful for, for uh, modern technology and underwear. Um, 
You read it. I didn't make it up. I'm just making sure you know. This is where all this stuff comes from. Um, okay, the Abimelech story happens again. Funny thing happens when Rebecca is riding in and she sees Isaac, she falls off her camel. Did you notice that? Which means either he was smoking hot or not. <laughs> I can't think why you fall off your camel when you see somebody. Uh, but she does. And weird story, it says, and so Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Now, if, if you're wondering if you should get married to, for comfort after your mom dies, the answer is no. This is not a good plan. We don't know a lot about their relationship down the road, uh, except they have really different opinions about which child they prefer. And, and this is what we get to read, is that Rachel becomes pregnant with two babies that fight in her womb. And I mean fight. And, and you know this does not biologically happen, that children like attack each other in the womb. It just doesn't. Nor does it happen that one baby is born grabbing the other's baby's heel. No midwife or doctor would allow that birth to happen because the baby's arm would come off. Do, do, do you know what I'm saying? This is not anatomically possible. I just want to pause and make sure we get this. All right? If we read the scripture at face value on this, we're missing what it's saying, which is from birth, from before birth, these kids were fighting, and, and that's really has a much more figurative meaning than a literal one, right? This is called breach. When you try to come out of the womb like this, lots of problems, right? I just want to make sure we're, we're, we're good on that point. <laughs> um, Jacob means heel grabber, but heel grabber was an idiom for thief. So, so they named their little boy Thief. Esau's hairy like a goat from the time he's born, which is cute, right? Look at our little goat baby. Uh, that's called Rosemary's baby, um, <laughs> right? Which is not a good thing. Hairy like a goat. Uh, surely, surely that is hyperbolic, right? I've seen people close, not even close. I've seen people half goaty, but full goat hairy, that's just, that's just tough. So, so they're born that way fighting, and, and you've heard me preach about this recently, so I don't want to overdo this, but, but Jacob spends his whole life trying to be born first. And of course, you know, I had to explain this to my daughter who wishes she were born first. This is not something you can ever do, right? I mean, when you're the second born, you just are. Uh, he steals the birthright, he steals the blessing, but he was still born second. I mean, that's his problem. He, he wants to be somebody he can't be. That's his whole life. And he steals it from his own brother, who, contrary to the way I was brought up, seems like a pretty okay guy. I mean, Esau doesn't seem wicked to me. He's not mean. I mean, he's not a great hunter, you know. He doesn't, he doesn't score any games, so he's hungry. Um, maybe he really did think he was going to starve to death. So, so he trades a birthright for a meal. I mean, that's probably teenage boy thinking, right? Like, I'm so hungry I'll die because I haven't eaten in three hours, you know, <laughs> right? But, but he's not like a wicked person. Jacob actually seems to be the wicked person. Jacob, of course, comes out smooth, smooth, like a smooth operator, which, which is what he is, right? And, and then he learns from mom how to be a trickster because mom, mom decides that she likes Jacob more and Jacob's going to get the stuff, Dad decides he likes Esau more, and, and, and culturally he's right, because Esau's the firstborn, and he's a man's man. He's a hairy hunter, you know? Um, and, and mom exerts her will by tricking her husband. She tricks her husband, right, with, with a goat skin. Interestingly enough, Jacob will get tricked by his own children who use a goat. They use the goat's blood to dip Joseph's coat. Interesting how... how uh, what goes around comes around, right? 
Um, interesting how the trickster gets tricked. Jacob tricks his dad, and then Laban tricks him, and then he tricks Laban. And then his kids trick him, and then he tricks his kids. I mean, this, this sort of happens. Somehow, there's this theme that becomes important from here on out. This was not true of Abraham, but of the trickster being sort of like a neat identity. And nobody really knows why this is. It could be because the, the Hebrew people actually were like the most technologically inferior people in their geography. Uh, these are people who were using stone tools uh, in the Iron Age. Uh, these were people who did not learn that you could ride on top of a horse until about 600 BCE, and people have been doing that for two, three hundred years ahead of them. Right? They knew you could ride a donkey, but they didn't know you could ride a horse. Um, so, so it could be that because they were so technologically inferior, the only way they felt they could succeed is by skullduggery. <laughs> and so they glorified that identity, but, but they're very aware that when you live by the trick, you die by the trick. I mean, that's this is sort of this weird thing that starts happening. People are just dirty, rotten tricksters to each other. Who knows how Isaac is tricked by a son who sounds nothing like the other son and by a goat skin. I mean, he had to be senile. What's weird is he... Ish? But I know my children apart from it. You know, I'd have to be dead to not, you know, it's not just blindness. It's a weird story. Did you notice though that Jacob steals the blessing and then a chapter later his dad gives him one? Because he's going to go marry Hebrew. Um, his brother had married Canaanites, and that wasn't good. And, and he says, I'm going to go marry one of these other people. And, and um, his dad says, well, let me give you a blessing. So which one did he do? Did he steal it or did he get it? Because you don't get two. You just get one blessing. It's sort of weird, right? And after he tricks him, apparently Isaac dies, but then he's alive again to bless him. <laughs> double stories, double sources. That, that's, that, that's the argument, right? Um, Yeah, well, she said that, but that's right. But even being a trickster, you still couldn't do that. You got it. No, once a blessing's given, it's done. Yep. Um, uh, notice that Jacob's afraid of his brother, so he runs away. This, this is really not about looking. I mean, again, you can read it. He either runs away from Esau for his life, or he goes on a nice diplomatic mission to find a wife. But, but there's a contradiction in the narrative, why he goes. Um, on the way, hits Bethel calls it house of God because he sees a ziggurat and messengers going up and down. Are they angels? Are they cherubim? Are they human beings? Who knows? But he says this neat thing, surely God was in this place and I didn't know it. Which is like, like an epiphany, right? When God shows up in places and people we didn't think God could. Like that's the story of Bethel, right? Anybody had one of those experiences where God surprised you? I hope so. You know, like I, I've had profound prejudices overturned, and, and, and that was my response. Like, oh my God, you were there the whole time, and I never thought you could be, right? I mean, that's the Bethel story. It's, it's, that's a good, powerful story. This is a neat thing, right? He goes up to Laban, and what do you know? He goes to a well. This one doesn't go as well, though, because Jacob's been running for his life, and he's poor, and so he has no money to buy Rachel with. That's the bottom line. He can't pay for her. And um, to the end of his life, Laban seems to think Rachel belongs to Laban, not to Jacob. Jacob's been an indentured servant, but he didn't really pay money. And this is a problem. Rachel means you, and Leah means heifer. And Jacob's a shepherd, not a cattle herd. So he prefers the you to the heifer. There's this great trick Laban pulls with veiling 
Leah, and this is why in this wedding ceremony to this day, you part the veil to make sure you're marrying who you thought. Hebrew language is interesting because it has this word bene, which means sort of behold, like Jacob woke up in the morning and behold, there was Leah. But you could translate that word really authentically as boom shakalaka. Um, <laughs> this is a huge surprise to the man, right? Um, who, who, who is not really the most cautious groom in the world, you know? This is part of the reason I advise people when I do weddings. No drinking before the wedding, celebrate after. You know, you don't want to pull a Jacob here and, and have a surprise. So um, anyway, that's the deal. The only thing we know about Leah is that she has either beautiful eyes or weak eyes. Uh, that's the only thing we know. And, and many people wonder what that means. Are they blue? Does she have conjunctivitis? I mean, there's a lot of different ideas about this. But eyes are important, and I'll tell you why in just a second. Um, and then he has to work seven more years for Rachel. And remember, the eyes thing on Leah, that God immediately looks at Leah because Jacob doesn't love her. Ah, it's interesting. God sees that Jacob doesn't love Leah, and God, and God has compassion for her, and God opens her womb. And notice, God controls women's fertility. God opens and closes the womb. And God opens Leah's womb a bunch of times, and Leah produces a son called Reuben. Ben means son, and Ru, like Roy, Elroy, God of my seeing. This means son of my seeing, like son of my beautiful or bad eyes. Um, because Jacob didn't see her, that's why she had a son to begin with. That's sort of weird pun, right? Uh, the language is kind of rich that way. Um, and she has a couple other boys like Levi and Simeon, and, and then Rachel finally has a baby, uh, Joseph, and we all think Joseph is Rachel's favorite kid, except the second son, Benjamin, that means son of my right hand, and the son of the right hand is definitely the preferred son. So you know, so, so who is... Jacob's favorite son, it's Benjamin, who is the youngest kid. No surprise there, because throughout the narrative, the youngest is the winner. Jacob's the oldest of Rachel's kids, so he would get the 90 over the 10 in that scenario, but Jacob actually prefers this guy, based on their name, if that makes sense. Um, did you notice a lot of people practice divination in the story? Like Joseph reads tea leaves, he's got like a diviner's cup, and, and Laban practices divination so he knows that Jacob is going away in the middle of the night. That's like wizardry. Divination, you know? Uh, it's because these aren't monotheists. And the Bible actually at this time believes people could do magic. You'll read it next week for sure. Pharaohs, magicians, they actually do some magic. Like, the Bible's okay with that. It believes people could do it. Um, you notice Jacob's trick, how he gets revenge? He says, I'll keep the weak spotted sheep and you keep the clean ones. And then he does something that doesn't work, <laughs> right? I mean, you can ask anybody you want who does animal husbandry. If you breed unspotted animals in shadows, do they get spots? And the answer is going to be no, they don't. But in this story, they do, right? <laughs> did, did you notice that? That's how Jacob gets them to be spotted. Well, that just, that's just foolishness, right? <laughs> that is, that's so crazy. And this is one of the dangers of reading this as a science book. The moral of the story is Laban tricks Jacob and Jacob gets revenge and somehow Jacob does it. And this is telling you how it works, but, but come on, it does not work like that. Uh, Jacob flees in the middle of the night, you notice, because he, he, he is running away. He says, I've got a right to the animals. If you've got a right, you don't leave in the middle of the night. So, so really, Jacob could be stealing. 
Laban says, you're taking my animals and my children and my grandchildren. Laban's implying that all the kids belong to him because Jacob was an indentured servant, not an equal to buy his daughters. Does that make sense? They, they, they make a pillar because God said, you better not mess with the guy. The pillar says, don't come back again or I'll kill you. And, and Jacob decides that his brother who wants to kill him is safer than his uncle who wants to kill him. And that's why he goes back. I, I, I want to be respectful of your time. I've gone over. We, we, we can pick up with Joseph next week, or I can give you highlights for seven more minutes, but I want to make sure I ask before I do it. Whew, okay, I'll go really fast. Um, they go to the Jabbok, you know, and, and look what Jacob does. This is an honorable man of God. He sends all his children in front of him to meet his brother so that he can be last in line, right? What, what a chivalrous thing to do. And he does this wrestling match, which I preached on about three or four months ago. Who he wrestles, the Bible doesn't really say. Um, it's either a man that he doesn't know, or it's an angel, whatever that means, or it's Esau, or it's God, and Jacob sure thinks it's God. And what do you know? Jacob is holding on to the thing's heel, just like he held on to Esau's heel. And the thing wants to get away before Jacob can figure out what or who it is. When the sun comes up, the cat's out of the bag, right? And it's important Jacob doesn't know. Uh, so, so the thing cheats and hits Jacob in the hip, but more arguably hits Jacob in the crotch really hard. Like so hard that Jacob's crotch is put in a socket and he has no more children and walks with a limp the rest of his life. And you would expect that because Jacob doesn't have any more children after this and he walks with a limp the rest of his life. Um, and somehow Jacob still doesn't let go. And so there's this story. Uh, I won't let you go unless you bless me. And I told you, bless in the sermon, this is true, bless can also be a euphemism for curse. <laughs> and we have to decide what Jacob gets. I'll change your name. You won't be thief anymore. Now you'll be steals from God. Is that a blessing? This is the person who is the, the sort of the namesake of the people. And the namesake means steals from God. Not receives, but steals. <laughs> There's something interesting about that, isn't there? I, I, I sure uh, find it easier to take or win something than I do just to receive a gift. I don't know about you. I'd much rather earn it or get it than receive it. And this is what's going on in the story. One wonders, stepping back from the story a little bit, what if Jacob had just let go? Who started the wrestling match to begin with? Did Jacob start wrestling with God or the being? Or did the, the other person start it? Are we wrestling with God because God wants us to? Or, or because we started it? <laughs> and is God asking us to just stop, right? Stop. Or do we feel like we have to win something? I, I mean, this is a great story that way. For, for my spiritual journey, in general, I, I'm trying to like, prove my worthiness. And, and, and I think you can read the story that way. Anyway, Jacob goes and Esau says, Brother, I don't need that stuff. I love you. And notice Jacob doesn't trust his brother's forgiveness because Jacob could never forgive somebody like that. I mean, Jacob's the bad brother in the story. Esau wants to be close and Jacob won't receive it. Jacob can't trust his brother because he's not trustworthy himself. Then we get to skip that story about Jacob's sons, who are terrible as well. Um, Levi and Shimon, right? 
who slaughter all these, they circumcise all these people and then they kill them, you know, to get revenge. That's called vengeance, not revenge. Those people are the ones the priests come from, right? Which is telling you priests are butchers and they don't get land and, and, and priests actually were butchers. They're the ones who chopped animals up. Uh, so, so, so be suspicious of us clergy people, right? Uh, we, we've got bad origins. One other thing I, I didn't tell you is that Rachel steals her father's gods. Did you notice? He gets really mad. You just took my, my, my children, my grandchildren, my sheep, and my gods. That's the word teraphim in Hebrew. These are probably little statues of headless, big-breasted women that are fertility statues called astartes or asherahs. You would bury them in the ground in your fields. You'd probably put them on the windowsill in your bedroom to help you have fertility. Again, these are not faithful monotheists. Rachel takes her father's gods so that she can have their powers. Um, interestingly enough, she hides them, she sits on them and says, I'm having sort of my time of the month, which, which would have desecrated them. In some ways, maybe the editor's using that to desecrate this idea of the teraphim as well. We don't know. God has to tell Jacob, though, put your foreign gods away like a bunch of times. <laughs> right? And God wouldn't have said that unless Jacob had foreign gods. So it's just important to remember these, reading monotheism in the text isn't fair to the text. Then we get to the Joseph story in three minutes. <laughs> or should we quit and do Joseph next week? Next week. Let's do Joseph next week. Yeah, it's a shorter reading. We're all we're reading is 20 chapters, not 50. It's the Exodus story. You'll be delighted by it. Hey, thanks for hanging on. Whew. Don't worry. Less reading this week. Thanks for coming. Good to see you.